All right, well, have a listen to this mission statement uh, from a well-known university. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't Bible College SA. It's not Dallas Seminary or Wheaton College. This is the original mission statement in 1636 of Harvard University. Now, around 80 years later, uh, there was, uh, after it was founded, there was a group of New England pastors and uh, they felt like Harvard had got off track. And so they wanted to bring it back to its original purpose. They felt it had been infected by its culture. And so they got together and they created a new institution. And the person who financed their efforts was a man named Elihu Yale in 1718. And so they established Yale University. But as you probably know, neither Harvard nor Yale really resemble anything to do with their original purpose, their beginnings. In fact, uh, in 2002, Larry Summers, who was the president at the time, said in a convocation of their divinity school, things divine have neither been central to my professional or personal life. Or, or take another organisation, the YMCA. Anyone know what that means, stands for? The Young Man's Christian Association. It was founded in 1844. I'm not going to get you to stand up and do the YMCA. Uh, but it was set up as a Bible study for displaced young men. And the vision statement went like this. Our object is the improvement of the spiritual condition of the young men engaged in houses of business by the formation of Bible classes, family and social prayer meetings. Well, the YMCA took off. And it was an incredible organisation. became one of the most successful missionary organisations in all of history. It sent 20,000 missionaries out into the world. But after the Great War, many young people had become a bit disillusioned with God and what God was doing in the world and began to lose their faith. And of course, the YMCA experienced a, a decline in their revenue and so they made the commercial decision to focus on their fitness programs and to downplay their Bible teaching and their sending of missionaries. So in, by the time of the 1970s and 80s, it had reinvented itself to just a family fitness centre. Well, let's come into the Bible. Even you look at the book of Joshua, and uh, and he had been largely successful, and Israel had possessed uh, the land that God had promised them largely. And Joshua said these famous words to the people: "Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." You know those words well. Do you remember what the people answered? The people said, "Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods." But of course, just a few pages over, in the book of Judges, God is forgotten and everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. Last example, uh, a couple of the most popular hashtags that are going around on social media today are hashtag deconversion, hashtag deconstruction or hashtag exvangelical. There's many blogs and podcasts of people who were once pastors, once Christians, once youth leaders, who are now telling their story publicly of why they have left the church and gone back on their Christian beliefs. Now, this has always been happening. This is not a new thing. But now there is this global platform to voice it and to encourage others and to call others to follow and leave as well. 
Now, in every one of those examples, the, the pressure to bow down is so strong. The, the cultural force on them to bow down, to lead them away from God is strong. And it's so strong that it actually meant that eventually they did bow down. Christian organisations that began with a founding purpose, right down to the individual, the court, cultural forces are strong that eventually lead them to bow down. Now, Daniel chapter 3 is the story of three boys who did not. Their very existence is threatened, but they did not bow. And, and there's so many different things you can look at in this chapter. There's, there's so many, but all I want to look at this morning is, why didn't they bow? Why didn't they bow? I mean, we need to launch an investigation because, because everybody is bowing. Many people bow as the cultural pressure comes on to serve other things and to, part, to depart from your original purpose and mission. Many people bow. Why didn't the boys bow? Well, it's, it's not because there wasn't any heat, was there? There's plenty of heat on the boys. You, you've seen so far in Daniel that the agenda of Babylon was to make them thoroughly Babylonian. That's what they were doing with the Jewish exiles, was to, to bring them out. And firstly, what they did was they isolated the best and the brightest. They took them out of their culture and their people, and they told them their stories, and they gave them their beliefs. They, they indoctrinated the best and the brightest. They indulged them. Remember that they, they gave this offer of the king's food to indulge them with Babylon's finest. And they created new identities for the boys, for Daniel and his friends, to make them forget who they really were. You see this in their renaming. Of course, Daniel means Yahweh is my judge. But Belshazzar means may Bel protect his life. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. But Shadrach means the command of Aku. Mishael, who is what God is. But Meshach means who is what Aku is. You see, what see what's happening here? Their identities are being renamed and reshaped. Azariah, the Lord helps. Abednego, or Abednego, the servant of Aku. You see, the heat is on. The reframing, the reshaping of their identity. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he has obviously forgotten about the, the interpretation, Daniel's interpretation of the dream, which you looked at last week. Um, the, you know, some years earlier, he'd had this, this dream and Daniel interpreted interpret it. And now he has set up this golden image for all to bow down and worship. It's about nine stories high. So this is this gigantic thing and it was made of gold or at least coated with gold. And it typified the impressiveness of Babylon. And the pressure to bow down to this image is extreme. The who's who's of authority have been assembled. The music is playing. And it has this psychological effect. It's like something out of the Hunger Games. You know, the music plays and everyone assembles. And every time it plays, everyone stops and everyone bows down to the gold image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Notice how it kept on repeating that as you read it out. Nebuchadnezzar has set it up. What's going on here? Well, in chapter 2, as part of the dream, we see that God was going to bring a kingdom and God was going to set it up. What's, what's Nebuchadnezzar doing here? He's setting up a rival kingdom, something that's going to be in direct opposition to God. And you can imagine the pressure that the boy's facing because everyone's bowing down. Everyone's bowing down to the image. And it's not just pagan Babylonians, it's their Jewish mates. 
They're down on the ground. They're looking up at them saying, Oi, what are you doing? Get down. Look at verse 6. You see, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. The heat is on, literally. And then they get spotted by the, the cultural Pharisees, the guys who just hate them for who they are, and they dob them in to Nebuchadnezzar saying, the boys don't bow. They will not bow. And now in verse 13, you see there that Nebuchadnezzar is hot with rage. So the boys can feel the heat. It's not because there was no heat that they didn't bow. It was literally heat that they can feel on their body. I wonder if you can feel the heat in your context. I mean, not the heat of the martyrs that the martyrs have faced, but the heat of our time. I wonder if you can feel it in your workplace, in your engagement online, in your family circles, in your friendships. You know, a, a 23-year-old young woman at our church, uh, she was working in the mental health sector, she uh, came up to me and told me that she was pulled up last week by her boss for not putting her preferred pronouns in her email signature block. Not putting she and her. And... The words were said to her, you're not being an ally. There's that kind of heat. But there's more. You see, Babylon's very beautiful. Its images are made of gold. Its delights are endless. And there's some heat on to bow and let Babylon have your heart. Mark Sayers writes this, there's this soft power. It's lubricated by technology and the promise of consumerism. Through the mythologies of advertising, media, the internet, and the instructive example of celebrity, a vast mental world is daily constructed in our minds, painting the possibility of a godless utopia, a secular heaven on earth in which an individual life is infused with pleasure, peace, and possibility that's achievable this side of death. You see, the heat is the temptation to worship created things and not the creator. The heat of Babylon is idols set up that you can't ignore because they're beautiful and everyone is bowing to them. The idols of our day tempt you to be busy and to therefore be stressed and overworked and believe that the most important thing in your life is your work. All the stuff on social media and TV, it makes you feel like your life is boring, like it's uninteresting and like there's something else out there that's better for you. We're also taught to laugh at people's misfortune and critique what people are wearing. The agenda of Babylon is to indulge you, to constantly feast on your desire for luxury and for comfort and escapism and make you selfish with your money not generous and, and, and spend things on yourself and just to make sure that you have enough and you earn enough in your life so that your super fund is full enough so that when you retire you can live comfortable and relaxed. The music is playing in Babylon and it wants you to bow down. That's the kind of heat that we face in our time. The heat that we face, it's not uh, denounce Jesus or you'll burn at the stake. I mean, certainly Christians in our history have faced that kind of heat but the devil in our time is much more subtle than that much more subtle than that bit by bit we fall in love with the beauty of Babylon 
until it's not a very big leap to just really not be following Jesus anymore at all. And there are many real factors uh, today that people face about why people are bowing in Babylon. Many factors. I listen to people talk about this all the time. People have been hurt by the church and that's real. People experience the hurt by that and it causes them to, to sort of want to walk away and discover other things and find acceptance and belonging elsewhere. People also are given to their desires and our desires are very strong. And they're usually in our time, I find, sexual. People want to express their sexual desires or it might be your views on cultural ethics. And those things are often related to marriage and sex and gender. It's not cool to have conservative views or biblical views on those things. And then there's also disappointment. God didn't turn my life out the way that I wanted. And so this, there's this heat on. And here too, the boys are in a minority. Some of their own are bowing. They have faced much disappointment. Disappointment. They're not in the land that God has, has promised them. But they do not bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And verse 16 tells us why. Have a look at verse 16. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is their reply. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. You see, they believe that God is able to deliver them. They believe that. Not only that, they believe that God will deliver them. You see that? They believe that God is able. He has the power to deliver them. And, and they believe actually that God will deliver them. And that's great faith. But even greater faith is even if he does not, they will not bow down and worship the image of gold. So why didn't the boys bow? The reason the boys didn't bow is because they had come to God for God himself and not for any other reason. They have come to God for God himself, and not for any other reason. You see, they hadn't come to God for a better, more prosperous life. They haven't come to God so that nothing will bad will happen to them. They haven't come to God for earthly happiness and their physical desires met. They haven't come to God to find friends to hang out with. They haven't come to God to fit in socially or culturally or any other way. They have come to God for God. In other words, they hadn't come to God in order to get something, but to give something, to actually worship God because he is the only God and he is worthy of worship. There is nothing in Babylon that is worthy of worship. You see, think about this. Why do we bow down to the idols of our culture? The idols in our hearts. Why do, we, why do people walk away from God altogether? It's because in some way God has disappointed us. He's not delivered what we wanted in the way that we wanted it. He turned out to be not the God that we wanted him to be. 
And when God disappoints us, we feel like he's holding out on us. We bow down to the gods we believe will deliver us what we need. I want to ask you this morning, have you come to God for God himself? Are you continually coming to God for God? This is so important to soberly consider in your own heart. Why have I come to God? Have I come to God for God? You see, if you've come to God for other reasons, like you really enjoy church community, what will happen when you experience church hurt? You'll leave for the same reason that you joined. Or what, what, what about you came to God because your, your parents expected you to come to God? What happens when your parents don't have the same influence on you? You'll leave for the same reason that you joined. What if you're praying because you want God to bless you in a certain way, but he doesn't bless you in that way? You leave for the same reason that you joined, in order to be blessed. What if you came for healing or for the dream job or the promotion or the husband or the wife or for him to fix everything that's hard, but he doesn't do it? You leave for the same reason that you joined. You bow to something else that you believe will give it to you. You see, why didn't the boys bow? They had come to God for God. And that's true worship. That's true faith. That's what this chapter is all about. It's about there being only one God and that God being worthy of your worship and nothing else. Nothing else in Babylon. The, the, the missionary Elizabeth Elliot, you might know of her, she wrote uh, a novel in the 60s called No Graven Image. It's a story that kind of mirrored her own experience that she tells in it as a missionary. And she described this American missionary in South America named Margaret who devoted her life to translating the Bible into an indigenous tribe's native language. And the tribe's language had never before been written down. And so key to her work was this man called Pedro. And he was a man who knew the language and he began to teach it to her and he started this painstaking work of recording and documenting it. She believed that Pedro was the answer to her prayers. God now seemed to be bringing things together. Margaret imagined the possibility of bringing the Bible to a million people in remote regions of the mountains. Well, One day she arrived at Pedro's home to continue their work. And she finds out that Pedro has a painful, infected wound in his leg. And since Margaret was equipped to provide routine medical care, she gives him a penicillin shot. But it turns out that he was allergic to it. And so Pedro eventually died. All the years of Margaret's labour are wiped away. She says, as for the translation of the Bible, of course, I cannot go ahead without an informant. God knew about that when Pedro died. I do not write prayer letters to my supporters anymore, for I have nothing to say about my work. It seems that on the night of Pedro's death, as though finished, were written below all that I had done. The book ends and there's no happy ending or silver lining for Margaret. Her only consolation is found on the last page, which includes this line. God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. But if, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. Now, the author, Elizabeth Elliot, she gives a lecture on her writing this book, No Graven Image, and in it she explains what she means by this last line. 
She explained that the graven image here was a God who always acted the way that we thought that he should. Or more to the point, he was a God who supported our plans, how we thought history should go. That is, a God of our own creation, a counterfeit God. Such a God is really just a projection of our own wisdom, of our own self. In that way of operating, God is our accomplice. Someone we relate to as long as he is doing what we want. If he does something else, we want to fire him or unfriend him. But at the very end, Margaret realises that the demise of her own plans had shattered her false god. And now she was free for the first time to worship the true God. When serving the God of my plans, she had been extraordinarily anxious. She had never been sure that God was going to come through for her and get it right. She was always trying to figure out how to bring God to do what she had planned. But she had not really been treating him as God, as the all-wise, all-good, all-powerful one. Now she had been liberated to put her hope, not in her agendas and plans, but in God himself. See, our worship, our faith, for it to be true, is always tested by fire. To reveal why we have come. To reveal the heart of our worship. Have we come for God and nothing else? This is the heart of faith and worship. And it's not blind. It's built on promises. You see, the boys, the three boys here, they know the God who once delivered their people, the people out of Israel, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea. And perhaps now they have Isaiah 43 on their mind as they're facing the fire. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. You see, they're about to walk into a fire, but they're not walking in blind. They're walking in based on a promise. They're standing on a promise. You will not be burned and the flame will not consume you. Why didn't they bow? They've come to God for God and they're living on his promises. And Nebuchadnezzar, of course, is filled with fury and the, and the furnace is heated seven times and the boys are bound and they're thrown into the fire, fiery furnace. But when they walked into the fire, they found to be true what they had only known before by trusting. You see that? They met God in there. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearances of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Now, I always think it's interesting the text here is foc- focuses on Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. But just have a think about this. Can you imagine the boy's reaction? When they walk into the fire, and there they walk into the arms of the Lord. The one who says, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I think they met Jesus in there. It's very Jesus-like, isn't it? The one who draws near, who goes through the fire with you. The one who went through the fires of hell on the cross, on your behalf. That we may enter into the presence of God in this life and even in death. We hear these words 
now as the children of God. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I want to just finish this morning. I know some of you are probably facing fires. You're facing deep struggles with your circumstances that are going on in your life. Deep struggle with perhaps sinful desires. It's just incredible heat on you. Deep struggle with doubt or with disappointment. First Peter talks a lot about this. In fact, Peter says, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. The first, it's a normal part of the Christian life as we go through. But first Peter 1 verse 7, Peter says, to believers facing heat in their time, he says, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The fire is doing something in your life. It's doing something. It's doing what God wants to do in your life. And it's asking you this particular question. Have you come to God for God? Have you come to him for him? Do you have an even if kind of faith? I know God has power to bring me out of this. And I believe that he will bring me out of this. But even if he doesn't, I won't bow down to the pressure of Babylon. I won't bow down to the forces that are calling me to walk away because I've come to God for God and I've found him to be good. And when I was found in sin, he sent his son to die, to endure the fires of hell for me so that I'll never be left alone. I'll never be forsaken. This is what God wants to do in your life. He wants to create an even if kind of faith. One where the actual prize of your salvation is him. It's him more than anything else in your life. He may deliver us from earthly fires. He may deliver us out. But even if he doesn't, we know, we know that he delivers us through eternal fires. Not one cell of your soul will be singed by fire. Because Jesus has gone through it for us. And so is there any image... In our time, in Adelaide, is there any image worthy of our worship other than the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who has gone through the worst for us, that we may be given his best eternal life with him? The book of Revelation sets up this battle, doesn't it? It sets up this battle between the city of Babylon versus the city of God. And at times it seems that the city of Babylon is winning. And more and more people are bowing. But in the end, we know who wins. We know that God's kingdom, the city of God's, God's kingdom, which is dreamed about here in Daniel chapter 2, just the chapter earlier, it will be established. And those who have not bowed in Babylon will be part of his eternal kingdom. This tells us that when the fires of this life are over, when they're over, and we've walked through them all, there will be a resurrection. And it's a resurrection that at the moment you've just trusted in by faith. 
But then, at the end of all things, what you've trusted in will turn out to be true when you walk into the arms of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I just want to bring this congregation before you this morning because the heat is on in our time and in these people's lives, Lord, in various different ways. Lord, it may be, Lord, that there's incredible circumstances, difficult circumstances that people are facing. The desire for sin, temptation. Lord, it may be that there's uh, pressure from external pressure that's coming, that's calling people to conform. Lord, I pray that we might see and know your goodness in this time. That we might, Lord, examine our hearts and examine why we've come. Lord, to examine whether we've come to you just in order to have a plain sailing kind of smooth life or whether we've come to you for you. Lord, you have revealed to us yourself in creation. You've revealed to yourself in your son. You've revealed to us, Lord, through the giving of your spirit. And Lord, I pray, I pray, Lord, that as the pressure comes upon us, that we will not bow, that we will continue, Lord, to walk through the fire and allow you to do what you want to do in our life. Lord, I pray that you might create an even-if kind of faith where we recognise that Christ is the prize. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.